chapter 11, verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. And so the Apostle Paul picks up in the middle of this chapter addressing uh, the issue or issues concerning traditions or customs within the church that he had laid for them uh, as a foundation before them. Now, it's an interesting thing for us to talk about traditions or customs in the context of the New Testament. And the reason is because in the New Covenant or the New Testament, which we're all a part of through the blood of Jesus, there really isn't much tradition or custom associated with our walk and relationship with God, which is a huge contrast from the Old Testament because the Old Testament was almost exclusively about the keeping of traditions and customs and, and feasts and days and times and seasons. That was the, the, the epitome, really, of their entire religious experience was just going from feast to feast or from holy day to holy day or from Sabbath to Sabbath. And there was so much ingrained within the traditions uh, in so many different ways. Now, those traditions in the Old Testament were all about uh, the looking back at things that God had done, memorials, but they also were looking forward to things that God would do. And so every single tradition that they kept had both of those elements, looking back at something God had done, looking forward to what God would do. You take the Passover. It was looking back on the deliverance from Egypt, but it was also looking forward to when Christ, the Lamb of God, would come and sacrifice the sin of the world. The keeping of the Sabbath was looking back to the seventh day of creation when God rested from all his works. It was a commemoration of God's rest. But it was also looking forward to the Sabbath life that would be provided through his son Jesus when we would rest from our own works and enter into God's eternal rest. And so looking back and looking forward. And all of the Old Testament relationship with God was based upon the keeping of those traditions. But then we come into the New Testament and it's a completely different uh, dynamic of, of the way that we relate to God. There's very little, almost zero tradition and custom in the way that we operate in the New Testament. In fact, uh, you know, Paul the Apostle, he would say, we forget the things which are behind and we press toward the mark of the high calling of God that's in Christ Jesus. As we don't dwell upon the past in the New Testament. It's different. Also, looking forward, what did Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? He said four times in 10 verses, he said, take no anxious thought for tomorrow. For today, sufficient unto today is the evil thereof. You know, uh, James talks about it in his epistle and he says, listen, don't get too far ahead of yourself in looking forward into the things that are going to come. Just deal with God right now. And that really is the dynamic and, and really the glory of the new covenant relationship that we have with him. That it isn't about the things that God has done in the past. And it's not about the things that God's going to do in the future. It's about the fact that we are called into a living, current, in the moment relationship with the living God today. And that is what matters in, in this new covenant thing. And so there's very little when it comes to tradition and custom in this New Testament relationship. How are you doing with Jesus now, today? However, 
there are two things that are customs that carry into the New Testament or are instituted in the New Testament. One of those things is baptism. Very important to God that when a person gives their life to Christ, that they be water baptized. Not because there's something special about the water or something uh, esoteric or, um, uh, you know, spiritual, supernatural that happens when you go under the water, but it was important to God that that's done. And the reason for that is so that you have a physical action that you can always associate with the change of life that took place when you gave your heart to Jesus Christ. A clean break from what was before you knew Christ to what now is, now that you do. And so God calls that as a tradition, something that we're to do, an, an Ebenezer stone, if you would, in your life that you can always look back and say, this is the moment I gave my life to Christ. The other one is the Lord's Supper or communion. That was instituted by Jesus. And he was very careful in the way that he laid that out, taking the bread, taking the cup, giving it to his disciples, and then telling them what he was doing and then saying to them, giving them the directive, this do in remembrance of me as often as you will. For in the doing of this, you do show my death until I come. Looking back at his death, looking forward to his coming, the communion table. Now, why was that tradition imposed upon the New Testament church that was given no other tradition by Jesus himself or that sanctioned in the New Testament. Here's why. Because the act of communion causes us to often come back to the place of recognizing who he is, that he is the Christ who died for my sins. It also brings me constantly back to the place of remembering who I am, that I am a sinner that's been saved by grace through the sacrifice of someone else and not of myself. And it forces me, as often as I'm at that table, to come to terms with the fact that a holy God stepped into the dimension of time and space, took on human flesh, and then hung on a cross and died absorbing the punishment that my sin deserved. And God says, I want you to remember that often because if you don't, you're not going to stay grounded. And so it reminds us who he is and it reminds us who we are and it reminds us why we are who we are now because of what he did. And that's a very important thing for us to constantly be in remembrance of. And therefore, Jesus gave this to the church by way of remembrance. Now, bring that to Corinth. In the, Paul, the letter of Paul that he wrote to them. Why is Paul addressing them in this issue now? Because he's going to talk about communion. And here's the reason. Because there is such a bipolar difference between what they had made the communion supper and what it was actually intended by God to be, that they were making it a disgrace. And so the Apostle Paul in the second half of this chapter brings rebuke or reproof to them because of their lackadaisical and erroneous mentality concerning the communion table and what it is and what it represented. Now, he talked to them in the first half of the chapter about head coverings. And he says, hey, you guys are doing good in this. In Corinth, that's an essential because of the culture there. And you're doing well to heed that tradition. But in this, he begins by saying, 
I praise you not. Because when you're coming together, and they would come together to break bread, he was saying it's not for the better, but it's for the worst. It's a net negative. Your church meetings, your communion services are doing more damage than good in your fellowship and in your lives. And so that's how he begins. And so uh, they brace themselves for the rebuke. And now here it comes. And so it begins with a contrast. What he's going to do here is that in verses 18 through 22, he's going to describe what the communion table was for them. This is the bad part. This is the, the error on their side. Then in verses 23 on through, I think, 26, he's going to talk about, yeah, it goes up through 26. He's going to talk about what the communion table was intended to be. And what we're going to see very quickly is a, is a stark contrast between the two things. And so he begins and he says to them in verse 18 now, he says, for first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I partly believe it. Now, this isn't the first time that the apostle Paul has addressed the issue of divisions within the church. Back in chapter one, he said to them, I, it is reported commonly to me from some of those that are in the household of Chloe that there are divisions among you, uh, sects and heresies and denominational boundaries and splinters and all of those types of things that were uh, overshadowing the glory of the church that was there in Corinth. There was splintering between the Christians that were supposed to be unified, schisms, fractures, and separations. Now, it wasn't just true of the church that you would look at the whole thing and say, wow, that's a divided church. But what Paul is saying here is that those divisions are manifested when you're all together. So we know that they exist, but the presence of those things or the impact of those things is coming out in your interaction with one another. Now, what's the problem with divisions in the church or Christians not seeing eye to eye one with another? N number one problem with divisions and why it's such an offense to God and why he hates it so much is because it's, it, it puts you automatically on the wrong side of the will of Christ. When you read John chapter 17, which is the last words of Jesus before going to the cross, the prayer that he prayed in the garden, and it's an incredible chapter because it's really the heart of Jesus for you and I after he departs from the world. And so it has us written all over it. It's like reading someone else's conversation about you. Great chapter. But five times in John chapter 17, Jesus prays with urgency and with passion that his people would be one, that there would be unity within the body of Christ, that there be no schism or separation or space that exists between us, but that there be a, a, a like-mindedness and a unity. And so for there to be division within the church, schisms and fractures and splinters, puts us on the wrong side of what Jesus passionately prayed for and part of what he died for. And so it's an offense to the cross. It's an offense to the Christ. The second reason why division is such an offense to God and why it's so harmful for us is because when there's division within a church or between Christians, it puts the engines of God in neutral. In God, we have this incredible power 
when you think about what's been laid out before us in the person of the Holy Spirit and the potential that we have to make an impact within our world and the ability that we have to reach into people's lives and to do things there that change them from being on a course of darkness and bringing them onto a course of light. When you look at the impact that a local church body can make within a community, there's more power potential within a local church body than there is on any level of human government or in any other place or function. We can do more to change the world than any dollar amount or anything, any influence that exists in the realms of men is nothing compared to the potential power that's at our disposal. And God promises that power to us. He's longing to find a body of believers and Christians through whom he can manifest himself in such a way that makes a difference within the world. But when there's division, it takes all of that potential power before God and it puts it into neutral. It shuts it off. The engine's still running. God is still there. He still can, but he will not when there's division. He has set that boundary upon himself. In Psalm chapter 133, It's a psalm of David. It's only three verses long, but I want you to listen to the words of the psalmist that he speaks by the Spirit of God. He says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head, signifying the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. Aaron was the high priest, a picture of Christ, and that went down to the skirts of his garments. So it went from the head, which in the Bible is always Christ. He's the high priest. But it came off the beard and it got onto the body, onto the garments or the covering. He says then, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, and here's why it matters, the reason for the psalm, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And so essentially you have three components there. You have unity, then you have anointing, and then you have those two things coming together and it translating into the blessing of God, number three. But where does it begin? It begins with unity. And without unity, the hand of God stops. When you read Nehemiah chapter eight, which is an account of a great revival of God in Israel's history, the first thing that it says concerning that move of God, it says that all of the people gathered together as one man before the water gate in Jerusalem. There was unity amongst the people. They had come together under God to hear his word and a great revival began. When you read Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, the first and great revival that started the church off, it says that all of the people came together as one man, that there was unity amongst the people that were there when God poured out his spirit. And I suggest to you, that any time God is going to move in an incredible way, there will be unity amongst his people first. And so to have a lack of unity or to have division within a church puts the engines of God in neutral. And then the third reason why division is so nasty and insipid in the mind of God is because when there is discord or faction, prayer is not heard. 
What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, if you come and present your gift to the altar and while you are there, it comes into your heart or into your mind that your brother or your sister has something against you. He says, leave your gift there at the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. God says, if there is schism or division between you and others that are called by his name, then it is more important for you to get that right first and then you bring your petitions and your sacrifices, your prayers to God. What did Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 3 concerning husbands and wives? He says, husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Here's why, that your prayers be not hindered. That even within a marriage, when there's discord, it hinders prayer. It stops it. It shuts it off. Unity is important to God. And Paul says here, when you guys are coming together, it is more of a detriment to yourselves than it is a blessing because there are divisions. But not only are there divisions, he goes on to say in verse 19, second of all, he says, for there must also be heresies among you. Now the word heresy is where we would insert the word sect, S-E-C-T, or denomination. Divisions that are highlighted, that define what those differences are. He's saying that there's, first of all, divisions. There must also be denominations among you. And the reason for that is so that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. And the idea behind that here, behind this denominationalism or these sects that Paul is condemning, take note of that, that existed within the the city of Corinth and the Christians in Corinth, is that he's basically saying that they are actively highlighting the lines of division. Or, to say it another way, it's giving them an opportunity to boast about what their divisions are. In other words, what these denominations do, and they do it today in the same way that they did it then, is that they give the church an identification line that separates them from other Christians. In other words, we are this denomination and we put this title on this denomination and then we list what our distinctives are underneath that title so that you'll be able to clarify in your mind where we stand versus where they stand and then you can make an easier decision which one of us you are more aligned with and then that's where you can choose to worship. And Paul, interestingly, is condemning that as he looks at this church in Corinth. He's saying, divisions, there must also be denominations. Now, what would he say if he looked at the church today? One time I looked up in the phone book uh, when we lived in Rochester and I counted how many churches there were in just uh, the, you know, the, the greater Rochester area in New York. And there were 796 churches within that area. And I thought, is that really necessary? And he says that the reason for it is so that they which are approved might be made manifest among you so that you can make your decisions. Now notice what he says about that in verse 20. He says, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Or a better way to say that is he would say, listen, this mentality, this practice, this mindset is not the Lord's Supper. This is not what Jesus intended 
when, when he ordained the church and called you to come together to break bread and to take communion in this way. This is not his will. Not what he, it is called communion, not come schism or come division. It is communion. So you are completely misrepresenting Christ in this thing because of the divisions that exist among you. Now, the reason why they had this mentality, and it's the reason why any Christian would ever have this mentality, is because they were operating under the banner of Christ, calling themselves Christians, but it was completely on the horizontal plane. There was no acknowledgement or remembrance of who he was and who we are and why we are who we are because of what he did. None of that had mattered anymore. Now it was completely who we are in comparison with ourselves. And the result of that is that there was a me first, self-absorbed, self-consumed attitude amongst the Christians and they were all about themselves, no concern for the well-being of others. What's in it for me? What in the service will bless me? How, what am I going to get out of the service today? Notice what he says. For in eating, everyone takes before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. He says, what? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. He's saying by having this mentality of just saying me first, give me the food, give me the best seat. It's all about me. What am I going to get? He's saying you're doing two things. Number one is you are dishonoring the church. You're bringing a blight and a shame on what it's intended to be. And number two, you're despising those that are weak and poor and those that have not. There are some people that that is the best and greatest meal that they're going to get in the course of a week. And when you go there and that's your mentality, it's all about you. Then you're ruining what God intends to do in blessing someone else. And he's saying, this is a shame. I will not praise you in it. I praise you not. Now in verse 23, he gives the other side of the coin. And the other side of the coin is what the communion table was supposed to be to the church and what it was supposed to represent. He says, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup and when he had supped saying, this cup is the new Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Notice the, the things that make up this table and what it represents. First of all, you'll notice right there in the beginning in verse 23 that it, it, the very institution of it, it took place on the night that he was betrayed. That it happened right after one of Jesus' closest companions, Judas, who dipped with him in the bull, had gone out and betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver and had basically signed his death certificate 
that he would go to the cross and that he would suffer and die. That on the very night that this was instituted, the context and background of that was in Christ the Savior laying down his life and his glory for the sake of someone else. That that's the backdrop of this whole communion thing unto the denying of himself. Then notice in verse 24, the very first phrase there, it says that when he then had given thanks. Now, if you read the account in John's gospel of that whole night and all the things that took place there, you'll see in chapter 13 that it began with Jesus coming with them into the upper room and it says that he took off the clothing that he was wearing. And one by one, he took a basin and he went around the room and he began to wash their feet. And in the setting up of the scene of that chapter, it says that Jesus, knowing where he had come from and where he was going, and that the Father had given all things into his hand. It says he took the, the clothes, the robe that he was wearing, and he took it off and he began to wash their feet. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus knew exactly what was taking place in that time and what he was facing, what he was heading for. And it was in that context of facing the cross, being betrayed by G Judas, that Jesus took bread and he gave thanks. He gave thanks in that situation, knowing what he was facing, and he was giving thanks not for what he would get. He was giving thanks for what he would give, that he was giving his life as a ransom for the world. Then notice what it says next in verse 24. It says, "Take he, after he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and then he said, take it and eat it. A symbol of his life and his body being given being poured out, him saying, I am yours unto death. I am yours to be devoured. And then it, he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. There's the institution of the tradition. I want you to do this, rehearse this, take the bread, break it, think about what it represents and what it means then receive it, eat it, internalize it. It's not something that's to be outward and looked at and examined and scientifically analyzed. It's to be ingested and it's to assimilate into your being and be a part of who you are. And thus he gave it to them. But notice he said, do this in remembrance of me. Not just the tradition of the giving out of the bread, but also the heart behind what Jesus was doing in that moment. What was he doing? He was laying his own life down for the sake of others. And what we're called to come to at the communion table is remembering that place that not only did Jesus lay down his life for me, but I am also called to lay down my life for others. That that's what I'm called to do. Then it says in verse 25, that after the same manner, he then also took the cup. And when he had supped, he did the same thing, saying, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, the cup in the Bible always represents the life of the individual and the contents of the cup represent the contents of the life. Leviticus chapter 17 says that the life is in the blood. So if Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, then what that cup represents is the life of Christ, who he is, 
His essence, his righteousness, his character, all the resources that make him God, all of his life is within that cup. And the righteousness of his life that he earned by living on earth as a man and living a perfect life without sin, all of that righteousness is contained within that cup as well. And Jesus says to them, I am giving the contents of my life and my righteousness and everything that I am to you. And I want you to take it and I want you to drink it. This is your cup. Now, the remarkable thing about that cup that he gave is that just a few hours after giving that cup to his disciples, he would be in a garden in agony and he would pray to his father three times. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What cup was Jesus talking about in that garden? You know what it was? It was your cup. It was my cup. It was the cup that you and I filled with everything that we were, our character, our flawed, sinful nature, every sin that we ever did, every piece and mark and speck of defilement that makes us the sinful, fallen creatures that we are. All of what that cup deserved in the wrath of God being poured upon it for sin, everything in this vile, wretched, self-centered, self-consumed, self-absorbed flesh was being handed to Jesus in that garden. And he was faced with the prospect of drinking the contents of that cup and absorbing the wrath that that cup deserved. At the communion table, there was a great exchanging of the cups that took place. I'm giving my life to you and I'm taking your life unto me. And thus you will receive all of the benefits of my life and the glory that I've purchased through my salvation. And I will take upon myself all of the wrath and the bitter gall that you stored up in your cup. And there will be a complete changing of the lives. Now, Jesus drank the cup that was handed to him in the garden, didn't he? Meaning that he took the contents of everything that we filled up in our lives by way of our wickedness. He drank it right down to the dregs. He swallowed every last drop and he absorbed the wrath of God for it all. But when we come to the communion table, we are to remember not just what Jesus did. Okay, well, I've got a cup of juice in my hand and he told me to drink it as often as I would. And since I'm in church, I might as well do it. But no, he says, look into that cup and look right to the bottom of it. And see the little specks that are swirling around in the bottom of that cup and realize that every bit of my life is contained in what you're about to drink. But you can't drink it unless you first lay at my feet all of the contents of yours and remember who you are. And then think to yourself, if he had to go to a cross and die as a consequence for that cup, then that means that that's my consequence because I'm the one that put him there. I'm not on the cross because of what he did but I should be. The second thing that it should bring to our remembrance is why in the world is it him? I mean, if God wants to sacrifice a lamb or if he wants to provide some other way or if he wants to send a righteous angel or raise up, but why is God on a cross 
and I'm not, when it's my sin that put him there. And when we come to that realization, that's when we're reaching the essence of what the table of the Lord represents and what it is to mean to us. Now, the obvious outcome and byproduct of that is that there's going to be a humility that's birthed in our hearts, isn't it? I mean, you cannot come to that realization without realizing what you are, what we are. And in that, there's a lowliness that has to come in to my life. At the very core, we are showing his death. We're coming to the cross, realizing that we are nothing, that we are lost, that we're hopeless, and that we're bankrupt. And we are showing that, notice, at the end of the verse, 26, until he, or it's in, yeah, until he comes. You're showing the Lord's death till he comes. Meaning that's the mentality that we're to have all the way through until the Lord returns, that we are Nothing. There's nothing that's in us. Now, do you see the contrast between what they were doing and what Jesus actually instituted and what he intended the communion supper to be? Now, Paul defines the problem or highlights it in verse 27. Notice this. He says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, and that's an important word, he says, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That word unworthily in the Greek means that it's without equal weight. The word is anaxion in the Greek. Axion means equal. And the idea is if you can picture a scale that's uh, in the form of a balance and you would place one substance on one side and you would place a weight on the other side and you would bring them to a balance or an equality. And when they would be equal, you would say axion, meaning that it's of equal weight. What's on one side is equal to what's on the other side. And so if it was out of balance, it would be anaxion. And what Paul is saying here is that if you don't give worth, if there isn't this equality of understanding wherein you are at the Lord's table, what you are at the Lord's table, then there's a disjointedness. It's out of harmony. You're anaxion. It's without equal weight. He's saying if you drink it unworthily without weight, He's saying, then you shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So guilty means that you're going to bring yourself under judgment. You're going to bring yourself under the judgment of God if that's your mentality at the communion table. Now, he is going to define what that looks like for a Christian when we get into verse 32. So hang on, because we'll be there in a moment. You say, what does it mean if I'm guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord? For now, mark it in your mind. It means that you bring yourself under the chastisement or the judgment of God. But notice what Paul tells us to do. This is what we're to do when we come to the communion table. Notice it in verse 28. He says, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. In other words, examine yourself, look at your life through the lens of the body and the blood. And when you do that, realize there that that should have been me upon that cross. And that if he took my place, then that's what I deserved and I should have been on the cross. And why is that him? And what am I worth in his eyes if he would be willing to do that for me? And the byproduct of that has to be a genuine humility. And notice, I want you to think about something because what is Paul rebuking here? He's rebuking divisions. He's rebuking schisms. And all of those things are the direct byproduct 
of nothing but pride, of an overvaluation of who I am and an elevation of myself over someone else. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, that contention cometh only by pride. And so if there is division, if there's schism in my heart towards another believer, then somewhere underneath that is pride. And the solution to that is come to the Lord's table, discern the body and the blood, recognize who you are and what he did for you, and let there be humility that comes into your life. And the, the, the immediate second outcome is that you're going to be genuinely concerned with the well-being of someone else and not just yourself. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 29. He says, for he that eats and drinks unworthily, that when you, you have that unaxion, there's no equal weight. You're not giving worth to what he did. He says, he eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He's saying that there's, there's a condemnation or a judgment or a chastisement that comes upon a person who eats and drinks unworthily. Now, that has two different contexts depending on who you are. If you're an unsaved person and you flippantly partake of the Lord's Supper without giving any worth or valuation to it, then what you are saying by partaking of that in that way is that you're saying that what Jesus did on the cross is unnecessary for me. I don't need to think about what he did or who he is because he didn't have to die for me. And for a person to be in that condition means that they're in an unsaved condition. They don't know Christ. But for a Christian to, to partake unworthily, which can also happen, what you're saying there is that not what he did was unnecessary because we know that it was necessary. But what you are saying is that it's unimportant. It is that I can just go through the motions of this and it isn't essential for me to come to the realization again of who he is and what he did and who I am, that's not important. And for me to do that as a Christian means that I'm going to come under chastisement. There's going to be discipline that's within my life. Now, what's the evidence of somebody not giving proper valuation and worth to the body and blood of the Lord? Verse 31, verse 30. He says, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep is that there is an absence of spiritual vitality and vibrance and life within you because you're not discerning the life of the Lord. It's interesting, uh, there, we, you know, sometimes um, you know, we'll uh, surf on Netflix and look, we love the documentaries and the different things and, and when we can find them. And so we'll scroll down, uh, different, look for different TED Talks or different... Um, info type things you know we love the the ones about food and sugar and you know the, we're just fascinated by the science behind all that but there's this one and i think we've seen it um, but now we just pass over it it's called uh, fat sick and nearly dead and 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 that's exactly the uh, the assessment that paul puts upon someone who is consumed with himself in the presence of the lord and before other believers he says that the outcome of your life is if you are self-consumed in the body of Christ, in the presence of God, in the presence of others, he says then the outcome is that there will be weakness, sickness, and death. That that's going to be the outcome of your life. Now, you can handle that one of two ways. Number one is that you can judge yourself or humble yourself. Notice in verse 31. He says, for if we would judge ourselves or evaluate ourselves 
or bring ourselves under the sentence of saying before God what we actually are. The Bible calls it confession, homologeo, saying the same thing about ourselves that God says about ourselves. He says, then that's the easy way because then we would not be judged. So if I can come before the Lord and I can say, God, my attitude has been completely wrong. My assessment of myself has been way too high. I've elevated myself against you and against other believers. I've been flippantly committing sin and thinking that I'm worthy of something or that I'm deserving of something. And God, I'm sorry for the things that I've done and the attitude that I've had before you and before your people. And the Bible says that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as soon as we confess our sin and bring it to him in that way, we have humbled ourselves. We've come to the lowly place and God puts away our sin and it foregoes the chastisement and it sets things right. But if we refuse to do that and we hold our ground and we say, no, I'm right on these things and I'm doctrinally right where I stand, and those other Christians are drinking their bath water, and they don't know what they're talking about, and I alone hold the keys of spiritual truth, and God got a good deal on the day that he purchased me from the dead because now he's got me in his kingdom. And if that's my attitude, and it's one of pride, and I'm lifted up in my mind and puffed up against others, well, then I'm going to experience verse 32. He says, but when we are judged, meaning we did not judge ourselves, but now God has had to step in. He says, we are chastened of the Lord. And so mark that as the definition when he says that you're guilty of the body and blood, that you bring yourself under judgment and condemnation. It's chastisement. You're going to be chastened of the Lord. And the reason is so that you should not be condemned with the world. Is that God is going to set things right within your heart. There's going to be a chastening. And if you don't humble yourself, then you'll have to be humbled. And it is a much more painful process when God has to do the humbling rather than we are, when we are willing to do it ourselves. I want to talk about pride for a minute as we uh, get ready to close our, our Bible study here. Um, because pride is way at the root of the sinful fallen condition. Every single one of us possesses a, a level of pride, uh, at least in our natural self, that, that is extremely dangerous and extremely harmful uh, before, before God and before um, even for ourselves. The Bible tells us that God hates pride. Now, I don't know if your mother told you what my mother told me, but she told me never use the word hate. She said, hate is a very powerful word. I can hear her saying it now. Hate is a very powerful word. Don't, I, I hate my teeth. She'd say, don't use it. Hate is a very, listen, it is a powerful word and God uses it. And he says, I hate pride. God hates pride. I want you to think about that. He hates it. He despises it. He loathes it. Pride is a big problem in man. And pride is a big problem even in Christians. I'm going to say something's going to shock you. People are going to start to move around now and go to the bathroom. Pride is a problem in the church, at least in the United States of America, in the northeast portion of the United States of America. There is a lot of pride that exists within Christians today. Now, why does God hate pride so much and why is pride so bad? Three things for you to just consider for just a moment. Number one is this, that to have a prideful attitude in my heart, for me personally, eclipses God's view of his son. 
God's eyes are ever upon Jesus. That's where he looks. He says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, this is going to get challenging because I forgot to put post-it notes in these passages. But in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, he says, Behold, God speaking by the Holy Spirit, he says, Behold my servant, speaking of Christ. Look at my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And then describing him, it says, he shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Meaning that God looks at his son, behold my servant, and where he finds him is in the lowest place, because that's what Jesus is. He is the picture of humility, the Lord who washes feet. And God's eye is ever upon him. We are called to be in Christ. That's our position. And if we're in our proper place in Christ, then when God sees Christ, he sees us. And that's where he wants to see us. In order for that to happen, there must be lowliness within our heart. A proper assessment and recognition of ourselves. When there's pride and self-elevation and I make myself more than what I am, I'm stepping outside of that place of lowliness and I'm standing somewhere in between God who's exalted and his view of a lowly Christ. And that bothers God. Because when he wants to see his son who's lowly, instead he's seeing me. When he wants to look at holiness and righteousness, he's looking low but he can't see around the elevation that I've made myself to be. Now, if we could see ourselves in that picture, we would immediately be humiliated and embarrassed because before all of the angels of God, before all of what is seen in the invisible realm, we have put ourselves in a place where we are not where we're supposed to be. We're exalting self. When self is to be on the cross, we're to be found in him, tucked away, hidden in Christ, clothed with his humility. And so pride eclipses God's view of his son, and he doesn't like to have his view of his son eclipsed in that way. Isaiah chapter 66, a little bit to the right of that, verses 1 and 2, the prophet speaking again by the Spirit of God, says this, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? Meaning, what are you going to do for me? You want to build me a house? You want to build me a place to rest my feet? What in the world can man do for a holy God? God says this concerning all of what we would do, all of what we would boast of. Verse 2, he says, For all those things my hand has made, And all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and that trembles at my word. That is who God will esteem. He does not care what our accomplishments are, how smart we are, how intelligent we are. He doesn't care about our giftings or our spiritual fruit. None of that matters one little bit to God. What he's looking for in our lives is brokenness and humility and a proper assessment of who we are. And what that is and where we find it is on a cross, condemned because of the sin that's inside. That's what we are. That's what I am. You are listening to a sinner. That's it. And that's all I'll ever be on my best day. 
And for us to ever think that we're something more than that is an offense to God. The second reason why pride is such a hateful thing to God is that because pride automatically blinds us to our true condition and it puts us in a holding place right where we are right now. Every single one of us that's in this room right now is a combination of strengths and weaknesses. Every one of us. We all have gifts and talents and strengths and things that that, that God uses us for, things that we bring glory to him through the exercise of. That's why he made us. It's for his pleasure and his purpose. And he finds pleasure in using us in the things that he made us for. Those are strengths. But every one of us also in this room has weaknesses and blind spots and things about us that are so offensive to God and so unuseful and that need to die and go to the cross and find their place in him. And those things exist just as much as the good thing. But sometimes... When God sees some of those weaknesses and he wants to deal with them, when he's met with pride or when he sees pride, he's unable to do it. Have you ever gone up to someone that you know, maybe someone you work with or a family member, someone who's maybe a little proud, and they've got something in their teeth? They've just had a salad, you know, kale, huge culprit for that, you know? And they got it, and it's there, and you see it. And they're talking, and it's like flapping in the wind, in the breeze as they go, you know? And you think, well, should I? Would I? (laughs) And you think, nah. (laughs) Here's why. Not because you want that person to continue looking like a fool, but because you know who you're dealing with. And you know that if you are to bring it to their attention... They're not going to receive it with thanksgiving that you just spared them a bunch of shame, but they're going to receive it in pride and they're going to make you feel humiliated for you bringing it up and saying something to them. Hey, you've, you know, you've got something in your teeth. Oh, yeah? Well, you've got something in your face. It's my fist. You better shut your mouth. I know what's in my teeth. You know, you think, oh, gosh. Now think about it. God sees something in our life. He sees a blind spot. He sees a weakness. He sees something in us that he wants to change for our good because everything that he does within our lives is good. But because we've been kind of like, oh, I've got strengths. I've got good things. God is favorable towards me. I'm accepted in Christ, which is true, and he loves me. If I allow that to lift me up in pride, then I become blinded to my weak spots. And when God wants to address those weak spots rather than finding softness and yieldedness and a willingness for him to change us, he's met with resistance and we are left unchanged. We stay in a holding pattern of what we are right now and that frustrates God because he wants to bring us into greater depths of life. That's his intent and his purpose. But when we're resistant through our pride and we won't let it happen, frustrates him. You say, well, that's not me because I'll let God do anything he wants. Anything that God says to me, I'm willing to do it. Oh yeah? What if God wants to use another believer to do it? And what if God wants to use a believer that you don't like to point out one of your weak spots or one of your blind spots? You say, why in the world would God do that? Because it promotes humility and God wants humility. And he wants us to recognize that we're not better than anyone else. And when we're proud, 
we lock ourselves into what we are right now and we miss out on what he might have for us for our future. And God hates that because he wants to bless our future. Number three is because pride causes God to posture himself against us when he wants to posture himself towards us. In James chapter 4, verse 6, and also in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, it says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when God sees us an attitude of self-elevation and pride, it puts him in a place where he has to resist us because now he has to deal with the pride before he can deal with the other things within our life. And I don't want to be on the wrong side of God's favor. I don't want God to be resisting my life. And therefore, I want to be in a place of humility. I can only imagine how much blessing and how much Christian progress is forfeited because of the presence of pride. And it causes God to say, I absolutely hate it. So what's the conclusion of the matter in verse 33? How does the Apostle Paul land this? He says, wherefore, my brethren, this is why, that's what wherefore means. This is why, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Listen, it's the most basic element and expression of humility that there is. Just esteem others better than yourself. Don't come to church with the mentality of what am I going to get out of it? What's in it for me? How am I going to be served today? But go there with the mentality of how does God want to use me in someone else's life? And how can I be broken? How can I be humbled? How can I be poured out as a drink offering for the sake of lifting someone else That is the expression of humility. And when someone lives that kind of life, it is direct evidence that they have spent time at the foot of the cross. They have discerned the body and the blood of the Lord. They fully recognize and understand who they are in the light of who he is and why. And they are willing to join Christ in that place of lowliness and humility and service. He says, if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. What's the payoff of you and I finding ourselves broken at the foot of the cross? Number one is that God is pleased. Is that when he sees humble Christians that are promoting unity in their love one for another, it sets him in a place where he is pleased. It's like the oil, the ointment that ran down Aaron's head, that dripped off his beard, and it came onto his clothes, and there God commanded the blessing. It also motivates the hand of God to do powerful things within our lives. It's what he desires to do. It's what he's wanting to do. And it also makes God available to us as we would call upon him in prayer. Humility and love is the lubrication that moves the hand of God, the engines of God. I'll close by reading Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this. He says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others, and let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be called equal with God. Not only was he God, but he allowed himself to be called God. But 
He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Is that God, who is in the highest place of exaltation, gave an example of the greatest humility that ever was. And he calls us to the same thing. He says, let this mind be in you. Listen, church, it's for our good. It's for our good to see the hand of God moving in our lives and to see him using us in each other's lives and in the community that we're in. Father, we thank you tonight for the word. And we thank you, Lord, for the reminder that each one of us is given as we see ourselves next to Christ. And we see him taking the cup that we deserved. And we ask you, Lord, that you, by your grace, would pour out on us afresh. And even now, Lord, as we hear the torrential downpour of that rain pounding off the roof of this building. Lord, I see pride as the thing that separates us from drinking in the glory of that rain. And if there be, Lord, in any one of our lives or in our church, something that is serving as an umbrella that is keeping us back from experiencing the refreshing rains of your Holy Spirit, I pray right now, Lord, that we would examine ourselves and that we would judge ourselves and that we would humble ourselves and that we would allow that flood of living water to come into our hearts and lives afresh. I pray tonight, Lord, for each one of us here that if there's anyone, Lord, that we are bitter against, anyone that we think we're better than they are, anyone over whom we would exalt ourselves, Oh, Lord, that we would have the grace to just lay that down right now and to repent and to humble ourselves before you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our, for our sins and for taking our place upon the cross. Give us wisdom and lead us in your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.